0: Oh, hi. I'm your host, Kyle Brownrigg, and welcome to Best Actress, discussing Best Actress and Best Supporting Actress Oscar wins, who we feel should have won, and why. Oh my god! Thank you so much. Hello and welcome to another episode of Best Actress. Welcome back after our little bit of a hiatus that we've had since September. Uh, our last episode was Audrey Hepburn uh, with guest host Catherine Nyker. I had to take a little bit of time off because I was working a lot. I was doing a TV show. I was recording an album, which will be coming out October nineteenth. Uh, it will be streaming everywhere. Please listen to that. Uh, and I was also out of the country, so I did not have time uh, to work on this podcast. But I'm very excited uh to be back and i am so excited to be introducing my returning guest um he is a comedian and a trivia writer and host it's josh murray hi josh
1: hi kyle um uh, mr skeffington mrs parkington
0: uh good to see everybody. <laughs> oh my god in that movie how many times did they need to say everyone's name like as if we all forgot every single character's name in every single scene then it'd be like oh hey mr skeffington oh hello or whatever like the the yeah. brother's name was it was so annoying um so today we are talking about the 1945 ceremony year win for Igrid Bergman for Gaslight. And I was excited for this year because obviously in the cultural uh, world right now of 2023, we use the term Gaslight to refer to um, sort of mental uh, manipulation and abuse. Uh, and it's derived from this movie. Um, and so I kind of thought this would be a very interesting uh, movie to talk about. Um, but Josh, why why did you pick this year?
1: Well, I had seen probably the most famous ones, uh, Gaslight and Double Indemnity, and I like them. And then the other three are just actresses who I love. Mm-hmm. So it felt probably even more than the last time I was on, which is I think the year right after this. Um, it just yes. seemed like a really interesting group of people to talk about. And I was kind of curious if those iconic performances I've seen by by Barbara Stanwyck and uh, Ingrid Bergman, if they could uh, be touched by some of my favorite actresses, especially Claudia Col- Colbert, I love. Uh, so I was kind of interested in seeing how I would end up ranking these five.
0: Yeah, I think for me, I was very curious um, about Barbara Stanwyck because uh, we had seen her uh, in that that mob movie where she was that lounge singer, and it was like a group of um, like professors, like nutty professors. Was that? Oh yes, yes, yes.
1: That's an interesting movie. Yeah, she she does so much comedy. Like she's done every genre. She's just a really weird person to not have an Oscar Uh, because she was nominated a lot and she sort of did every genre. But so many of these were, I think, things like noir that aren't really that recognized that often.
0: Mm. Um, Okay, so very quickly, the 1945 ceremony Oscar year, Best Picture went to Going My Way. Best Actor went to Bing Crosby for Going My Way, uh, which I think the Bells of St. Mary's was the sequel to that movie which also yeah, I, was with. I was on that one. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. You're right. So once you said that you had done the year before, I'm like, okay, this is all making sense. Cause a lot of these, um, actors and performances felt familiar to me. Uh, best supporting actor went to Barry Fitzgerald for going my way. Best supporting actress went to Ethel Barrymore, uh, for none, but the lonely heart. And if you don't know who Ethel Barrymore is, she is the great aunt of Drew Barrymore and best director went to going my way for Leo McCary. um, So because we were literally just talking about Barbara Stanwyck, let's just jump into Barbara Stanwyck in Double Identity. So very quickly, um, a Los Angeles insurance representative lets an alluring housewife seduce him into a scheme of insurance fraud and murder that arouses the suspicion of his colleague and insurance investigator. And this movie was actually very fun. Barbara Stanwyck's wig was hideous. We'll talk about that because the director actually hated the wig so much um, and said um, that it was intentional, but it actually wasn't. Um, And I almost wonder if that movie LA Confidential got some of its inspiration from this film a little bit, just in terms of its tone. I don't know. Um, But yeah, so I I'd, I'd never seen uh Double Identity. It's actually I think listed um in like the top 100 or the top 150 on IMDb, so it's a very critically acclaimed film um throughout history. So it, it was it was fun uh watching this movie. It opens on an insurance salesman uh coming into his office and he's shot. I think the pacing of the movie is really wonderful. I think Barbara Stanwyck's performances um something that was familiar, almost like ball of fire. Like I was familiar to ball of fire. Um, I, I, she sort of has that obviously femme fatale vibe that she's, she's, she seems to do very, very well. Um, I would almost argue she's a little bit more of a supporting character in this movie. Cause, um, it's really about the insurance salesman, the the lead who this movie is really about, but whatever that, you know, category fraud is category, whatever. Uh, but I did enjoy this film and I did enjoy Barbara Stanwyck in it. I wish there was a little bit more of her, but um, she does, you know, femme fatale very well. Anyway, uh, Josh, what did you think of Double Identity and what did you think of Barbara Stanwyck?
1: Well, uh, Cards on the Table is just one of my favorite movies. I have, It's probably the third time I've seen it and it's just got such fun dialogue and it's really what you want. I it's, it's the classic movie I would watch with someone who doesn't watch a lot of classic movies.
0: Mm, Interesting.
1: First of all, because noir is not especially like prominent today. And secondly, it's just twisty and it's built on these, I would like the leads, but also Edward G Robinson, these three phenomenal performances uh, that sort of interact with each other in every combo. And they're just so fantastic. I think she kind of becomes a lead just by like sheer force of how good she is Mm. and how much they are like talking around each other. and it's. A reveal like it kind of reminds me of like the amount that Sharon Stone is in Basic Instinct or something like that and so right. many neo-noirs definitely take an amount for this where it's like yeah it's not as large a role as the guy but it is the starring role that you need a movie star for or otherwise the movie just falls apart so it's just like a, a showcase um, that is is so large it, it's also like Sunset Boulevard it's like that's definitely which is also a Billy Wilder film that's definitely. a a much smaller role than the male lead that Gloria Swanson has, but you're left like remembering her and her moments. Um, So that's, that's so interesting. But that to me, Sunset Boulevard is like a classy noir that's like sort of uh, judged up a little like to be an Oscar favorite and Double Indemnity is kind of a real like gritty noir uh, where, it doesn't, it looks great. It's a Billy Wilder movie. And it's got this, this Raymond uh, Chandler punched up dialogue, Uh, like great author, great screenwriter, a couple of like, role models of mine. I really like uh, Fred McMurray and Barbara Stanwyck and Edward G. Robinson in it. But it's it's just, um, it's so interesting that noir, she was so undeniable that the Oscars nominated noir when they normally don't. And I'm a big fan of film noir. And a lot of people a lot of actresses like Jane Greer and Elizabeth Scott barely ever got nominated and like Rita Hayworth even mm. uh, because it just wasn't really a genre on their radar. But A, they loved Billy Wilder. I think he's about to make uh, The Lost Weekend, which is a Best Picture winner at this point. And B, like Stanwick was just one of those stars. And to me, it's crazy that, that she never won. She's someone kind of like Cary Grant and Claude Rains, who we'll talk about later, where like, They're just such iconic figures, it's weird that they don't have an Oscar.
0: I mean, I would definitely say that there is a thing to when characters fit so well into film, sometimes you forget how difficult that is for the actor. Like they're just doing such a good job that it actually just looks so effortless that they just naturally belong in that setting. And I would definitely say that's how I feel about Barbara Stanwyck in this movie. Other than that hideous wig, everything was working for me. Um th- it felt almost like a bit of a Betty Davis role. Um, I'd be curious to see her uh, take on this kind of role, but I think the 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 thing that's most successful in Barbara Stanwyck's performance in Double Identity is that you can't tell if she's telling the truth or not, and that that sense of confusion for the audience is maintained throughout the entire film, where in the movie Gaslight, for example, it's like you can tell that Charles Boyer did it within the first five minutes. Do you know what I mean?
1: He's not a great guy. Yeah. That's actually a really, really good point is I think noir, there's this inherent given that the main guy is kind of shitty usually. And usually everyone's telling him how shitty he is. And this is kind of something that happens sometimes to Fred McMurray in this movie. But it kind of means that you certain noirs when they want to like departure from the uh badass femme fatale thing a little they can have someone who seems that way and then the the woman's not actually up to all that much and is is a fairly decent person this one really keeps you guessing which side it's going to be on there's like a case being investigated but it's not this bulletproof case that makes a ton of sense nobody is like mustache twirling all the way like Boyer, because the whole point of gaslight is sort of you know who's at fault but she can't prove it, mm-hmm. so it's and, and I really think that's what it comes down to. These are two iconic movies that are probably in different ways still being talked about almost a hundred years later. And uh, I think the big thing is that, like you said before, it's it's not from Stanwick's POV and Ingrid Bergman trying to make this case and prove this thing the whole movie. That's kind of more of a stage floor. So, just like most of the time, Stanwick was nominated. It just wasn't in the air for a win, but it, it kills me because she's one of my favorite actresses. I mean, it, it's it's the same way I would feel if some of my favorites like uh, Angela Bassett and Carrie Mulligan and Sigourney Weaver never end up winning, you know?
0: Right. Well, I think Angela Bassett next year is already received. She's already been awarded, or it's announced that she has receiving the honorary Oscar.
1: It's true, and uh, those sort of count. Uh, I think. <laughs> I think I'm sure Stanwick got one either before or after she died. Probably before, because she, she lived into her 90s.
0: They call them the deathbed Oscars. Yes,
1: yes. Yeah. And then occasionally you're like Paul Newman and you win a, a competitive one after.
0: Yeah, and then you're like, oh, shit. Okay. And that must be so insulting as an actor. It's oh, like, well, I'm not done. Do yeah, like, I'm exactly. I'm. <laughs> Um, a couple of facts about this movie. So author James M. kane, who lo- who wrote the book, later admitted that if he had come up with some of the solutions to the plot that screenwriter screenwriters Billy Wilder and Raymond Chandler did, he would have employed them in his original novel. So that's high praise coming from the source author. And James M. Kane based his novella on a nineteen twenty seven murder uh, perpetuated. Perpetrated, sorry, by a married Queens, New York woman and her lover, whose trial he attended whilst working as a journalist in New York. In that crime, Ruth Snyder persuaded her boyfriend Judd Gray to kill her husband Albert after having him take out a big insurance policy with a double indemnity clause. The murders were quickly identified. The murderers were quickly identified, arrested, and convicted. The front page photo of Snyder's execution in the electric chair at Sing Sing, taken secretly with a hidden camera, has been called the most famous news photo of the 1920s. So a little history for you there.
1: I thought it was really interesting that this was based on a book and a real-life case, but also a different novelist was brought in to help Wilder write the movie. There's just so many uh, voices, before you even add in stars who have their own huge personalities, like, like Edward G. Robinson and Stanwyck. Mm-hmm. and Edward G. Robinson's the boss in or like the colleague in this who is essentially suspicious that Fred Murray's up to no good and, and he's really fantastic I also thought it was kind of funny that Billy Wilder um, has Fred McMurray as the central role and he's like sort of a rumpled uh, survivor guy who always wants a beer and uh, he. a lot of people are always telling him what a piece of shit he is yeah. and then <laughs> the other time Billy Wilder cast him and I can remember is the apartment where he's the boss and he's just like the worst person ever
0: yeah. Right. Oh, well, the one criticism that I have for this movie is that for me personally, there weren't enough scenes with Barbara Stanwyck because I love a femme fatale. I love a villainess. Um, we love uh, in the LGBTQ community. Like we love, you know, a fabulous villain. Um, I-, I just, It's not her fault, obviously. It's just um, from a movie-making perspective. My question is, how many scenes do we need discussing insurance policies? You know, maybe we could get Barbara Stanwyck in a couple of those scenes. I don't know. But, um, you know, there are a few things that I would have changed. But overall... um, I find it sometimes very difficult to sit down and really pay attention to these movies for two, sometimes even in this year, that Claude Colbert film, three hours. Um, I I do find it difficult, but... A film like Double Identity, I'm able to sit down, pay attention to it and watch it. I mean, I have my criticisms, but this is a very, very fantastic film. And if um, anybody listening, if you haven't seen it, just like Ball Ball of Fire, there is uh, there's something about it and there's something about her performance that just make it really special. And I I, I would recommend watching it.
1: Yeah, and if, if people loved uh, this movie or Stanwick, and you want to see a noir where she has a bigger, more central role as the person trying to figure out what's going on, I would recommend The Strange Love of Martha Ivers or Sorry, Wrong Number. Those are great movies.
0: See, this is why we have you on the podcast. You need to, I don't know anything about these things. This is why you're here. Um, also, I thought it was very – and the thing that I thought it was very funny is that she admits – Um, that she never loved Walter until she realized that she couldn't fire a second shot at him. You're like, oh, that's so romantic. (laughs) Um, that I thought was funny.
1: (laughs) And then the last line is, and I love you between the guys.
0: Right. Yes, 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 yes. Billy
1: Wilder was known for his uh, last lines, like somebody's perfect or shut up and deal.
0: Yes. Right. Okay. Um. Okay, well, do you have anything else that you would like to add to Barbara Stanwyck's performance before we move on?
1: She's great. Uh, yeah, that's it.
0: <laughs> okay, great. Let's talk about Greer Garson in the film Mrs. Parkington. So very quickly, a widowed matriarch reminisces about her family fortunes, including her romance with her financier slash mine owner. Uh, the whole movie, I just kept calling him the colonel. Um, so the movie opens on Alice, uh, the family drunk, who hates children and is awful to her family members, instantly my favorite character of the film. I don't, I find with Greer Garson films, it either really works for me or it uh, really does not work for me. I'll be honest with you, this film uh, didn't really work for me. And I think feel like the reason why it wasn't because of the scenes when she was younger it was the scenes when she was the rich grandmother with a heart of gold the reason why is because she did this weird thing because obviously as you age your voice gets deeper but she did this thing with her voice where it was like we're like this, like she was talking, like she was out of breath. And that that was very fake and annoying. And also the old age makeup wasn't really working for me. She just looked like a really hungover 35-year-old. So th- that took me out of it. Um, obviously, that's not her fault. But just from the audience and, um, you know... <laughs> watching uh betty davis for example in the older scenes in mr skeffington she looked like jane from whatever happened to baby jane even though it was 1943 you know what i mean i'm just saying that the makeup wasn't doing greer garson any favors in this film and that did kind of take me out of it um i think the flashback scenes are really the most interesting part of this film and i think it's the better part of her performance because she's like the ingenue and she's being you know rags to riches uh we we've seen her in in films like this before um and you know it's something that she's familiar with and she's done she can do very very well i don't i don't particularly care for this film mrs parkington um i'm sure greer garson was the right choice but um i think the best part was just in the flashback scenes and uh that was kind of it for me so josh what did you think of greer garson in mrs parkington
1: yeah this is a weird movie um It's probably my least favorite movie of the ones we watched this week. Yeah, Uh, Mm -hmm. Even though two of them are over two and a half hours and it's not this one, I found this one the hardest to get through, sort of. And yeah, you're right. The old age scenes. When I think good acting through bad old age makeup, I think like my gold standard for some reason is Winona Ryder and Edward Scissorhands. Oh, yeah. I forgot
0: about that.
1: Cause she really does like a second voice, uh, but it's like linked to the younger voice and uh, the makeup's goofy, but it just doesn't matter. And, but here it, it wasn't a framing device. It's like half the movie is just like going back to like these elderly scenes where she's doing like a Dana Carvey, like church lady routine. uh, And like talking about how her whole family sucks, except for like the one granddaughter. It's also like needlessly complicated and it's all about like, uh, step-like grandsons or like granddaughters-in-law and uh, all of the different businesses they have and how her family's so like ungrateful. It's it's just really two halves of a very different story. The flashbacks are better, but I do think she had more chemistry with the women, like mm. flirtatiously almost, the countess and the duchess and everybody. Uh, <laughs> her and Walter Pigeon as uh, the, the colonel, I guess, he... Like, they have more chemistry in Mrs. Miniver, I think. Mm. But uh, here, I don't know. He just kind of seemed like a shit. And most of what <laughs> they do is fight. And um, Greer Garson herself is probably the best thing about the movie. Um, I particularly like uh, how she has, like, when she'll blow the little curl of uh, hair in her forehead in on these, like, uh, pointed moments. Um, it's yeah, very right. uh, fabulous. But... Uh, it's it's interesting. The worst thing I could say about her is my favorite moment for the character uh, was entirely a directing choice. And it's when they have a fight at the house and she walks away. And it just goes on forever, and he's like, "Susie, come back! You hear, do you not hear me, Susie, come back!" And you just see her walking around different rooms of the mansion away from him. And I'm like, "This is uh, Mrs. Parkington. I'm starting to like Mrs. Parkington as a person, just for like how long this is going on, and how the movie is still not cutting away while we see like echoes in the Mister Deeds Mansion, basically." <laughs> well,
0: whenever you talk about, um, yeah, Walter uh, Pigeon in this film, I I don't know if their chemistry worked as well well is you know um remember when we watched the valley of decision which i think came out the year after with greer garson and gregory peck i wonder if gregory peck if he was swapped with walter pigeon would that maybe make the chemistry a little bit better i don't know in the flashback
1: Peck is way hotter i mean like yeah oh sure with anyone or like an object or like when he's like talking to an animal
0: oh yeah no absolutely i think absolutely definitely way hotter um but i There was something about the chemistry between her and Walter Pidgeon that also, yeah, wasn't really um, working for me. Um, Also, whenever she is with child and then she faints on the stairs in the most overacted way, I can honestly say that is the most overacting I think I've ever seen in a movie, period. When she kind of stops and just kind of, oh my, and then like throws her hand back. It was like comedic. Like it just seems so ridiculous at that point there's this thing with Greer Garson where it either really works for me or it really doesn't. So the Valley of decision, that one works for me. Um, And then this film, Mrs. Parkington just like really doesn't, she's very hit or miss. For me, there's really no um, in between. Um, There was just a lot of criticisms that I had of little tiny things, uh, which overall just made for not really a one, not, not one of my fave performances and also just like my least favorite film in this, in this year.
1: Yeah, and there's also one of the other movies we watched this week. uh, We're supposed to invest in a marriage where you never see the husband. And I found it easier to care about that than this marriage where Walter Pidgeon is actually in it a lot. I can't get over the Gregory Peck call. It's really good because uh, the guy's kind of mean. But if he just like makes like Roman Holiday face, you would kind of understand why she would keep going back to him.
0: Yeah, right. And... Whenever her grandson or nephew or whatever needs to bail him out for thirty one million dollars, and then she's like, "Well, I'll have to ask the family because, you know, that's basically all of your inheritance." And then she ends up doing it. I, I did not understand um that motivation. Uh, I also um, was very confused at the way that she adopted that new fancy accent like way too soon in her character's journey, especially at that dinner that like no one showed up to. And like she, she was just newly married. They had just renovated the the mansion, the house, the estate, whatever. But she was already like greeting people like, oh, hello, dear. How are you? Like it was just, it was too much too soon. I didn't enjoy the yeah. pacing of the, um, characters' uh, journey. Again, the overacting. Uh, the, I think I had more criticisms for this performance and for this film than I actually did for praise. Um, whenever they would go back to present time, the family was so incredibly rotten and miserable. It just kind of went like full August Osage County. But the thing is, is that. We the audience like don't really care about them because there's no redeeming qualities about them. So we, when we kept going back to them, it was almost like annoying. Like it was like, I don't care about any of you. So why do we need to keep figuring out what's going on with your inheritance? Like, I just, I don't care. And The way that Greer Garst, like Mrs. Parkington is always just so sickly sweet and always the like morally superior character to everyone. And she's so perfect that she would just give up all of her fortune rather than screw over the employees because, you know, she comes from, you know, the dust bowl of wherever and you're just kind of like. 't it's just laying it on like when characters are too perfect like that I don't like them and I just find the I find it almost like lazy writing and I just don't enjoy it as an audience member so anyway needless to say i I have more criticism for this film than I do for praise and I just didn't really enjoy it
1: yeah yeah I really just want her to do more of the shopping with the baroness uh <laughs> I think it's the best thing about the movie and uh, she's in one of the other ones too, I think. But, um, I, and maybe falling in love. Like, I, I, I don't know. I, to me, Agnes Moorhead was her best scene partner and her best romantic chemistry. There's a, a flirtatious uh, bent to it that I really enjoyed. Ooh, and, uh, interesting. Lots of, lots of wartime. Uh, this is really 1944 in a nutshell. Cause it's like, it's when everything's becoming like propaganda almost. Cause Uh, unlike the first few years of World War II, like America actually knew the whole deal about the Nazis by now. So like they're making these like full-fledged propaganda films. And I think Mr. Skeffington is probably my idea of like a pretty good propaganda-ish movie and Mrs. Parkington, much less so, sadly. Sure. But uh, yeah, it's it's just interesting to see all of that uh, and then have the other two, three movies that are essentially about like war stuff and then like Gaslight and Double Indemnity, which are sort of a, about like you never know who you could trust. And like it, it's just clearly what's on everyone's mind is general paranoia.
0: Yeah. Also the scenes with Lady Nora Edsworth, the mistress of um uh Walter Pigeon at one point. <laughs> didn't didn't Greer Garson like not know who the Prince of Wales was or something, which was just Yep absurd like it was this this absurd plot point that I thought was totally like again, like comical, like it was just like, what like now the the Prince of Wales is like you, Lady Nora Edsworth, shall return home and no longer speak to, and it was just the the sort of the bitchy back and forth between her and Greer Garson, I thought had a strong Joan Collins dynasty kind of energy <laughs> and and um that was yes, kind of. Uh... Not, Not that, to own, me, was maybe the, the most in, in entertaining movies. part of the film. Uh, uh, this movie, I thought, was insane. Yeah, and again, uh, whenever she it's, decides it's to basically fuck like, over her entire family, just, you're like, These okay, okay you're the morally right superior one, and you're going to give you know the so money back to the employees so that they don't get screwed over. But at the end of the day, like you raised this family and are kind of responsible for the reason that they're so awful. So you being so amazing and sickly sweet, and everybody else is so crotchety and gross it's like that also doesn't make sense because it's like they'd be like you if you raise them and they're not like that so there's a disconnect there's no uh, familial chemistry that doesn't work there's just a lot of problems with that anybody listening i say pass to mrs parkington i wouldn't i wouldn't bother <laughs> um Do you have anything else that, Um, oh, the only fact I had about this movie was that it's unusual for a film, even today, this movie was shot in chronological order, including like the flashbacks and present scene. It was all shot in chronological order. Hey, Best Actress listeners. Enjoying the show? Want to hear more? Access our entire catalog of Best Actress episodes from the very beginning ad-free by subscribing to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bestactress. By subscribing, you will also gain access to new episodes one day earlier than their normal release day. Best Actress Podcast will always have 10 free episodes available, but with the release of a new episode, the oldest will go to Patreon, where you can access it anytime with your subscription. Come on, ladies. It's a Fritz Bernays. It's no question. Visit patreon.com slash bestactress to subscribe. So... Okay. Uh do you have anything else that you would like to add to Mrs. Parkington's uh Greer Garson's performance in Mrs. Parkington before we move on?
1: Yeah, I mean, she, she gets upstaged by some character actors. Uh even even the Prince uh Prince Albert or Prince Edward guy was good, Prince of Wales. Uh but um <laughs> Yeah, it's just the one performance here where I I have notes. She's a good actress, but I have notes. Like It's like the older scenes are not as good. They filmed it in order. Maybe they should have stopped after the young parts and just made a 90-minute movie or whatever.
0: Yeah, no, totally. I know exactly what you mean. (laughs) Um, Or or a short
1: framing device. But yeah, she's she's probably my least favorite of these five actresses. Uh, She's been good, but the others just seem more consistent. So it wasn't too surprising.
0: I, I, I agree with you. I always say that about Greer Garson. It's either hit or miss for me. Um, okay, so let's talk about Betty Davis in Mr. Skeffington. So this was exciting because I'd never seen uh, this film before. I'm pretty sure I've seen all of her Oscar-nominated performances now, except for maybe like one or two. But uh, this is, I think, the one of the last ones. So very quickly, Mr. Skeffington, popular and beautiful – uh, Fanny Trellis is forced into a loveless marriage with an older man, Jewish banker Job Skeffington, or Job, sorry, it was pronounced Job. Job Skeffington, in order to save her beloved brother, Trippy, from an embezzlement charge. And if you've seen the film, you know how triggering it is to hear the word Trippy because. Betty Davis needs to say her brother's name, Trippy, every single time he walks into a scene. Every time she talks to him. Every time she talks about him. It's like, oh, Trippy, there you are, Trippy. Hello, Trippy. What would you like, Trippy? Are you going off to war, Trippy? No, I'm going to save you from being arrested, Trippy. Do you have? Have you met my brother, Trippy? It's like, okay, we get that his name is Trippy. That is a uh, script uh, criticism, but I stand by it. Um, so Betty Davis in the movie, I didn't understand like why the movie opened with her with like a bride of Frankenstein haircut uh, being swooned by all of her suitors. Um, and then I realized that this was a it, the movie starts at a flashback, which makes me realize like I clearly am so stupid when it comes to history because a movie that takes place in if it's from the 40s and you're dressed up like Dr. Quinn medicine woman in my head, I'm like, oh, yeah, like the 40s. Like it doesn't register in my head that like. In the 40s, they were doing flashbacks to, like, the early century. Um, So that took me a second. And then as the movie progressed, she looked like somebody from the 40s. And I was like, oh, we were, like, in the past. I understand now. I'm stupid. Um, At the beginning of the film, to show how young and ingenue she was, she sort of had this, like, little squeaky voice. Um, I found it uh, a little distracting. And... I'm going to say something that might elicit the gasp. I found her to be at the beginning of the film somewhat miscast um, playing this like young, desirable, like little thing. Like, cause I'm just so used to seeing her being this villainous, calculated, well, just like fabulous woman that when I see her playing this sweet little thing, I'm like, eh, I don't know about that. It doesn't really work. But as she gets older and then you start to see that she's only marrying Job to save Trippy and um, how she doesn't really care about her daughter very much. And then you start to see where Betty Davids can really play to her strengths. Then I really enjoyed um, Mr. Skeffington. Um, at one point she catches a illness called diphtheria which turns her into jane from whatever happened to baby jane it ages her very much i didn't know that diphtheria did that i went down like a wikipedia wormhole um (laughs) but overall i would say that this is kind of what you would expect from a betty davis oscar nominated performance from this time period and You know, the ending has a very interesting message because she loses all her beauty. So men stop talking to her. But then Job, who she divorced because she didn't love him, is blinded. So he can't see how undesirable she is physically. So then that reignites or maybe creates that love connection for the first time because she didn't really love him the first time because he can appreciate her. Inner beauty. I'm not sure what the ending message was of the film, but I think the the second half of the film is is fun and interesting and good and what you want from Betty Davis. And I find the beginning of the film is kind of tedious and a bit of a chore. So, uh, Josh, what did you think of Betty Davis in Mister Scuffington?
1: Well, it's so strange to talk about Betty Davis in general because uh, with regard to like the idea that she's sort of miscast it's true that this isn't like what you think of as a betty davis role Mm. uh but it's interesting but what a betty davis role is is everyone just calling her old and ugly when she's not so it's always weird anyway i just got used to it from like all about eve and her other movies but (laughs) uh it's it's interesting I like, I, I like a lot of, like, uh, 30s comedies, and she was sort of a supporting actress in those uh, when she was always blonde. And she's always, like, the hot young thing who's going to, like, steal the leading lady's man or whatever. So it's so interesting how her career evolves over time when she becomes a leading lady. And both this and uh, Since You Went Away are a lot of, like, just talking about how old people are or whatever. Uh, But I did like this movie because Daddy Davis and Claude Rains are just like two of the best people to put in front of the camera, Mm -hmm. uh, especially if they have to monologue sometimes. And yeah, I just think the, the suitor part, I think she can do it, but it's just a little more boring. The real meat of the story is the Skeffingtons and to an extent their daughter and all of the weird contrasts and talking around. I found this was like an impressive movie to make during the production code. Because they talk pretty in-depth about the war. He is implied to be basically blinded in a concentration camp.
0: Right. And
1: also, uh, it's it's basically about having affairs. Because she's still married this whole time. And they don't acknowledge sexual relations in, like, words. But there's not really a way to interpret it. Other than, like, that she has, like, essentially separated and had these affairs. And that these some of these married men still remain very curious about her. Uh, The guys like enjoy competing with each other and like have missed each other. It's a really weird vibe with the gaggle of men. It's actually kind of ball of fire professors uh, esque, but uh, yeah, it's a really interesting, impressive movie to make while there was a code telling you to not talk about sex at all. And I also thought Claude Rains was just like a knockout here. Uh, He's, a crazy person to never win an o- Oscar, especially because he's like the supporting actor. And mm-hmm. uh, I, if it, I think his win probably should have been either this or Casablanca. Like it's uh, the marriage. I just bought it so much more than Mrs. Parkington because they put in the time, even though they have a long separation, everyone's talking about that. So you know how they feel about it. And you actually get both of other points of view as well. There are some scenes with Claude Rains and the daughter. So as a Davis showcase, it starts weird, it's true, but eventually she delivers the goods. So I just thought it was one of the really great nominated performances.
0: It's interesting that you said the thing about Claude Rains, because Betty Davis actually said that Claude Rains, uh, who played Mr. Skeffington, was actually her favorite male co-star. And they co-starred in four movies together, Juarez, Now Voyager, Mr. Skeffington, and Deception. Um, oh, they're both
1: really good in Now Voyager.
0: I think that's the one I haven't seen.
1: Yeah, it's a lot of of boats.
0: (laughs) Okay, then I've not seen that one. Um, At the time, most Warner Brothers' A features had a 30-day shooting schedule. Uh, This film took 110 days when Jack L. Warner sent Julius J. Epstein and Philip G. Epstein a note inquiring why the picture was behind schedule. Um, The tersely humorous reply was... Betty Davis is a slow director, which apparently she was a control freak, so I believe that. Uh, This is also Betty Davis's final Oscar-nominated performance while under contract at Warner Brothers. Um, I would say that um, there were some moments of her performance that felt almost caricature, like when she was being pursued by like 100 men, and then she walks out like, oh, there's an attractive man. I want to talk to him. Like, just like what is that (laughs) i i had a hard time getting into kind of moments um it it was too big um and even you know the amazing betty davis it wasn't really selling it for me i also thought that they stretched out this plot extremely thin because really what are we talking about here it's like she's trying to save her brother she's in a loveless marriage she's revered for her beauty And then she loses her beauty. And then I suppose the moral of the story is like, be nice because you might get ugly someday. And then if you're ugly, people don't want to talk to you anymore. And that's kind of what happens to her. Um, I just, uh, I didn't really think there was enough going on in this film for it to be I think it was over two hours. It was like two hours and five minutes or something like this, but I think was um,
1: like two and a half. Yeah.
0: yeah so, some, something like that. I, I just didn't really think that there was enough going on here. Um, if of all of her Oscar nominated performances, um, you know, you know, my favorites are obviously going to be like, you know, um, all about Eve or whatever happened to baby Jane or the letter. And Mr. Skeffington, I don't know if I would put this uh, like very high, like I put it like mid range in terms of the performance, but that was more like the later half of the performance and her having to adjust to, you know, after she catches diphtheria. Um, I also found her, extremely cold relationship with her daughter to be very interesting. And I feel like for the time to not see a mother so warm with her child, that was probably very different for the time because mothers were always portrayed as like earth mothers and um, so nurturing and sweet. So, you know you can really see Betty Davis nailing those kinds of scenes and she does and i very much enjoyed those kinds of scenes um i much preferred betty davis than greer garson for example but um i would maybe put this film like third or fourth on the list uh of these 5 that we watched um and uh yeah that i think I think the most realistic character and the most interesting character, not interesting, but the most realistic character was Cousin George. Um, He kind of just came in and he just kind of came in and made the most sense. Like he would just kind of be like, you're being ridiculous. Or um, he would just always be there for her and she would speak to him in the most non-manipulative she had no outlying motivations kind of way and he they had a certain respect and rapport for each other Um, and i i I thought that yeah cousin george was kind of the one of the best performances in the film and um yeah that's that's kind of all i have to say about this uh about this film
1: i think uh mr skeffington might be the character who i really connected with i uh but George is so nice and mm-hmm. uh, I think they've been so helpful and they both, the only thing that kind of salvages the ending, I think is like that there is this running line that she is most beautiful when she is loved or whatever. And then George is like, Oh, look at this. You've never been more beautiful, even though he can't see you. Like right. uh, you're, you're so loved right now. Cause he's so has missed you this whole time. Cause it was always real for him. Mm-hmm. and and he he was smitten with her um so that's interesting, but yeah i it's still not super neat or pat uh nailing of some kind of uh message about beauty that that strikes me as in any way advanced or progressive or feminist. and I do always wonder too, like with those stories about like, oh Betty Davis, like being a control freak here or being the director, I'm like, were you guys just mad that like your woman, a woman had notes on like a vaguely sexist character, possibly. Totally. And you're like, oh, she's such a control, like, especially like low level crew guys, I feel like always spread that myth. And it's like, oh, look at her, And like, yeah, I, I just always wonder. I always take it with a grain of salt.
0: <laughs> oh, me too. I mean, sexism was, I mean, in these movies, the violence towards women is almost like encouraged <laughs> in some of these films. You're like, Jesus. Um, Okay, well, let's talk about, Claudette Colbert in Since You Went Away. So very quickly, um, when husband Tim is away during World War II, Anne Hilton copes with problems on the home front, taking in a lodger, Colonel Smollett, to help make ends meet and dealing with shortages and rationing are minor inconveniences compared to the love affair, daughter Jane, and Colonel Grandson's conduct. I have to say, uh, I have always found um, Jennifer Jones to be the most one of the most overrated actresses of her time, and I gotta say, in this film uh she's delivering for me and i think that this is one of her better performances she was nominated for a supporting role you could almost kind of argue she was a lead because she was in this movie a lot um and i think there's actually a little fact i wrote at an hour and 15 minutes and 38 seconds jennifer jones's performance in this movie is the longest ever nominated for an academy award for best supporting actress so yeah there you go um Claudette Colbert is the uh, mother of the household. And um, I did find it interesting that... uh, this film came about because David Oselznick wanted to make a film that showed his support for the war effort, and he deliberately did not want to make a traditional war movie and I appreciate when people do things that are kind of unexpected and different. My only issue that I had with this movie is it made it seem like the everyone was so happy, and everyone was so like. Upbeat and excited and flirty like Claudette Colbert and Jennifer Jones were being pursued all the time and everybody was just you know like remarking on their beauty and how desirable they were and I'm like your husband is away at war right now like is this it's like okay to make my point I'm saying that when I was watching it I almost was like jealous that I didn't have a husband away at war and I could be swooned by sexy military men because that's kind of what I was getting from it it was it just seemed like the flirtiest time in history where I was like, mm, like there's way more important things going on right now than you being complimented on how awesome you are like everybody was just so nice and sickly sweet and for a war movie I want a little bit more um tragedy I I think I think that Claudette Colbert is giving the most in this movie, the most reality to it. So, for example, when she finds out that her um, fiancé, or sorry, her fiancé, whenever her husband has gone missing in battle, her reaction is big. However, she needs to be strong for her family, so she reigns it in. That is, v- I, I wouldn't even know how to do that. Like that takes skill. The beginning of the film, whenever um he leaves for war and she gets very upset and she's in um the bedroom and then her kids come looking for her and she has to get it together before they see her crying. Those kinds of scenes are I'm like, okay. That is really the emotional journey of the character. That's what's going on. It's what you don't see. And I thought that that was very effective because everything just seems so happy and whatever. So those moments where she had her breakdowns, it was just so necessary and very effective. And so for me... I really thought that Claude Colbert was really like the best part of the film. But that being said, Jennifer Jones, I think also did a wonderful job compared to other movies that I've seen her in. However, whenever she finds out that her fiancé died in battle, oh my God, she was stiffer than a corpse with her reaction. She wasn't even, she was like fake crying with no tears. Like it was bad. I'm not a big Jennifer Jones person, and I just have to say that this film, she did do a little bit better for me, but just there were moments that really let me down. All of this to say, Claudette Colbert was really delivering and showing how and what this picture was supposed to be. So I give it up for Claudette Colbert, and um, I think, yeah, she was the best part of the film.
1: She did that.
0: So Josh, what did you think of this film, and what did you think of Claudette Colbert?
1: Yeah, I think, I think I am very much in line with you here. I think it's a flawed movie that is basically saved by Claudette Colbert. Mm-hmm. Like, I think she's the best thing going on here. This is the one of the war movies this week that is like, I think explicitly like a propaganda film in terms of like, get along and put on a good face at home and, and be smiling, sort of an American version of like the, the English, like stiff upper lip kind of mentality of like, just keep on keeping on. But... I don't think what you're supposed to do in terms of like solidarity with wartime is like just flirt with everyone who isn't your husband. So yes, it's, right. uh, it's kind of strange, but she isn't actually really interested in any of them. It doesn't seem like she really has to like consider it or anything. It's kind of a weird subplot and it's very hard to like say what the main plot is here besides waiting for the husband to come home, which I, again, I'm, I'm impressed how much I invested in that. But yeah, I I'm not a Jennifer Jones fan either. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I feel like you're right that there's always at least one moment that's false, even in a performance where she's otherwise good. And you mm-hmm. can really feel, I think I said this last time when she was actually nominated in the lead, like she's David O'Sales' Nick Wife. She's got a few favors there, and she always ends up in the big, important pictures.
0: But yes. I am a huge
1: Claudette Colbert fan, mostly from comedies, but I thought she was really solid here too and I think because of her comedy background in uh, a lot of my favorites like It Happened One Night and uh, also uh, The Palm Beach Story which is just one of the funniest movies Um, (laughs) she is excellent with tone she is excellent with managing and shifting the different tones and she's kind of the only person whose smiliness seems kind of dreamy and like far off stare and like it's a put on where everyone else seems like suspiciously a little too happy. I also really the first hour thankfully it's not one of the couples who's supposed to end up together but the first hour has a lot of joseph cotton being like man i wish i could fuck this teenager
0: i know like
1: she's got a big crush on me and like oh i would killed to be 13 too and like he's always whispering things like that to her he's always implying the same to her mom and it's just the weirdest thing especially because i watched this before gaslight and then he turned up again and i'm like <laughs> <I> oh <know>, yeah <laughs> go back to citizen kane but yeah it it that was a, a weird, uh, creepy uh, thread that I didn't necessarily appreciate. But at least that was not the couple they were setting up. In fact, they're not really setting him up with uh, anyone.
0: Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I know, like, and the the flirtatious thing with the mom and the the daughter. I mean, at one point, he even makes like this like sexy pinup artwork of Claudette Colbert, like lifting up her skirt. And I'm just like, what? <laughs> like, what is this? He's obsessed with this one family. <laughs> yeah, it's it, that I his character and his obsession with the women in this family was um, a little unsettling. Um, there were certain lines. So Shirley Temple had been uh, in retirement for two years whenever David O. Selznick persuaded her to join the film, basically being like, oh, it's not like your typical sort of uh, war film. And because uh, he did he tra- he didn't want to make a traditional war film but then she would deliver these lines where she'd be like oh mother I miss pop something awful and it was like she wasn't Shirley Temple anymore where she was she wasn't she was at that awkward age where she's not a baby anymore so that line was like very cringe and like weird and it's like you're a little too old to be saying something like that it's like I get why you cast Shirley Temple but I think that moment in history, those kinds of lines should have been um designated for Shirley Temple in like the 30s, maybe not so much the 40s, because she was like becoming into a young woman. And so saying something like, Oh, I miss Pa, something awful, it just it just sounds cringe and and wrong. So there were parts of this film, like I really I, I didn't like, okay, so um, okay, another line that I hated was, My darling and my darling's darling, and humbly me. Like, who talks like that? It, it was just they were laying it on so, so, so thick. And this movie was three hours long. I had to watch it in like four uh, or five like different um, sittings. Um, It was definitely a struggle. I wish there was more Claudette Colbert and less of Jennifer Jones. Um, Another fact I have about this film, at the time, uh, this was the longest and most expensive Hollywood film since David O. Selznick's own Gone with the Wind. And Jennifer Jones and Robert Walker play young lovers in real life. They were at the end of a failed marriage and divorced shortly after. And then she later married David O. Selznick, the producer of this film, which is why she was nominated for so many Oscars I'm calling shenanigans. But, um, you know... I ov- believe
1: uh, I believe Robert Walker... Uh, was actually closeted at the time Uh, because I know he does a really big villain performance in Strangers on a Train that is very homoerotic in the way he's like pursuing the main guy
0: oh really interesting okay I gotta check this out (laughs) yeah (laughs) um but yeah Claude Colbert to me in this film was just kind of the she grounded it she played the mother so well. Whenever she found out that her husband was coming home at the end, just a beautiful reaction. If there was any kind of emotion that was evoked from watching this film, it was always from her. And um, I, uh, she just has that sort of thing that we talk about on this show. It's just this, this it- factor just this star power where it's like you just are captivated by her even if she's just reading a phone book like she just does it so well and um uh this is so random and off topic but she looked a lot like my grandmother (laughs) oh lovely yeah and i wonder if my grandfather was like a fan of claudette colbert i don't know but um i i really i just i wish there was more of her and less of jennifer jones but i think yeah really wonderful performance from claudette colbert
1: yeah. Yeah. I really love her in this. I really love her always. She's does what I, what I sort of think of as the Nicole Kidman thing, which is she can give like an excellent nuanced performance in like a two star movie. Right. Uh, she just doesn't really ever phone it in, whether it's like comedy or drama, she'll be like, well, she got it. And the rest of them didn't. And all three of these movies that are sort of propaganda ish, Skeffington, Parkington, and since you went away, I'm actually surprised they're from novels. Cause I kept feeling like they were adapted from plays or something because of cheesy lines like the Shirley Temple thing and it just like there's something was lost in translation from like mm-hmm. what the tone was supposed to be because in all three of these maybe with the exception of Greer Garson it seems like the lead actress and the other major uh actors like Claude Rains like seem to know what to do but sometimes you have supporting casts like Jennifer Jones and Shirley Temple who had some false moments and it's just like how fast were they cooking uh, the movies during wartime? <laughs> like, how how few takes did they get? How how much did everyone have to go home to like feed the kids?
0: Oh, totally. Um, also, again, like totally off topic, has nothing to do with the performance. But did Jennifer Jones have a lisp?
1: Uh, like, was she doing one for this character? I don't know. I mean, it sounded like it maybe in some scenes.
0: I, I kept hearing it, and I'm like, I've never trying to remember if
1: other movies. I, I don't think so, but yeah. <laughs>
0: It's, it sounded like a little bit of the lisp because I've never heard her with a lisp before. So I don't know if that was a character choice, but I, I thought I heard it through like, the movie. I don't know.
1: But yeah, it, it is a crazy long performance to be nominated for supporting actress. Oh, totally. I, I, I think it's because the movie's long. I think by percentage, it's probably not as much as like Rooney Mara and Carol or, or someone like that who's like really actually the lead who ended up in supporting. But yeah. Uh, it's Mm. it's it's the longest in minutes so it's over an hour like uh, that's pretty wild
0: yeah that is wild okay
1: especially because she didn't even win with that much uh showcase
0: (laughs) right yeah miss Barrymore (laughs) did um okay so let's just move on then to our 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 winner Ingrid Bergman in Gaslight so this is her first of three Oscars um So Gaslight, 10 years after her aunt was murdered in their London home, a woman returns from Italy in the 1880s to resume residence with her new husband, played by Charles Boyer, who reminds me so much of Jean Dujardin. His obsessive interest in the home rises from a secret that may require driving his wife insane. Um, I'm going to read some facts about this movie before we talk about the performance. When this movie was produced, MGM attempted to have all prints of the previous version, Gaslight from 1940, destroyed. These efforts were ultimately unsuccessful, though this movie was rarely seen for the next two Decades director George Cukor suggested that Ingrid Bergman study the patients at a mental hospital to learn about nervous breakdowns. She did focusing on one woman in particular whose habits and physical quirks became part of her character. Named for this movie, and this is what I was mentioning at the top of the episode, gaslighting has become a recognized form of controlling and manipulative behavior. It involves an exploitative person manipulating people who suspect him or her into doubting themselves and questioning their own perceptions so that they distrust their own suspicions of the manipulator. By the 2020s, this behavior would be classified as a form of physical abuse. And... (laughs) <laughs> Something on a lighter note, Dame Angela Lansbury's first Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actress as well as her theatrical mu- movie debut. She was working in a department store in California at the time, and they asked her to stay. And she said, if you can match like $27 a week, which um, by inflation would be like $500. Obviously, they couldn't match that. And then she went on to work in Hollywood and the rest is history. Um So Ingrid Bergman in Gaslight. Wow. So the um, sort of like, what's the word for it? It's this like gothic, noir, like, you know, psychological thriller. Like, I love the cinematography. I love the tone. I love the way that Ingrid Bergman, it's not so much about what she says, it's about how she reacts to everything. Um, Some of it was, like, a little, like, over the top. But, you know, that's just kind of the acting standard at the time. But Ingrid Bergman has this thing, like we were talking about with Claudette Colbert, where she just is so captivating. And, yeah, like you said, like Nicole Kidman, you know, she just does the damn thing and she gives it 110%. And this movie... um was so entertaining and I uh this was I would say of all the films this was the one that I paid attention to the most and the thing that I mentioned before saying that you know Charles Boyer like you know that he was the one that did it within the first 5 minutes of the film it's it doesn't hurt the movie it still makes it interesting and it still makes it very very uh watchable and he's he's looking for these jewels and I love the um the the fact that there's like this murder, this unsolved murder, and then someone's trying to solve it. And it's in like, you know, foggy London in like the late 19th century. Like it's just a lot of fun. And um, Ingrid Bergman's performance was, was uh, very captivating. And uh, I, I very, very much enjoyed this film. So uh, Josh, what did you think about Gaslight? And what did you think about Ingrid Bergman?
1: Yeah. I mean, what a picture it's. Uh, it's fitting that Angela Lansbury is there because gaslighting is literally a tale as old as time, if you know what yeah. I mean. <laughs> Murder, Murder, Charles, Murder Charles Boyer wrote. But um, <laughs> yeah. Bergman is just on fire here. This this is her first Oscar, right, out of three? That's right. And uh, yeah, it just makes, especially after, I don't think she was nominated for Casablanca. So nope. when she came a couple of years later with a performance like this, and she had had such a horrible snub for Casablanca, like people must've just known it's time. It's it's gonna be time. Right. And this whole movie, it, it almost reminds me of like Joan of Arc or like religious trial movies. It's all her trying to like stand up for herself and make a speech and like whatever, like prove what she's doing. And, and you're to- you're totally right that like, it doesn't lessen the movie at all to know who's at fault here. It actually reminds me of the show Columbo, how they show you the criminal at the very start. So they call it not a whodunit, but a how catch em. Right. And it's like, how is she going to prove that Boyer is, like, full of shit? Because it seems like he has thought of everything in advance. But also, I'm still distracted by the preamble you did, because I cannot believe that in releasing Gaslight, they tried to pretend the 1940 Gaslight didn't exist. <laughs> they tried to Gaslight the public about (laughs) a different movie called Gaslight. Like, that's just too perfect.
0: Yeah. I mean, they didn't have the internet back then, so they could totally Gaslight people.
1: (laughs) Exactly. They're like, what do you mean? That movie never happened. Uh, You must be hysterical.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. I also, um, I think that, Another thing that's very effective as well is that she plays the role of a woman in her time very well. And that like in, uh, God, when was it like 1875? Well, this says 1880s, but I'm pretty sure I read online. It was 18. So anyway, the late 1800s, you know, a woman disagreeing with her husband and not listening to her husband yet, like there, she has a certain place in society, and there's like, you only have so many rights. I mean, at this point, women couldn't even vote. So it's like, if your husband is telling you that this is what it is, it's like, you have to believe him. And I think, as the audience member, it's like, you need to remember that because she could easily just question him. But it's like, no, no, no. Like, it was a totally different time. So he was driving her into madness because, like, you believed your husband and what he said, and you had a certain place in society as a woman in the 1800s in Europe, you know? And so I think that she did, she played that very, very uh, well, because I wasn't getting like irritated with her being like, oh my God, like, why would you believe him? Like, no, no, no. It's like, you get that. And I think that she makes that very, very um, effective. Um, I also... The only thing I didn't really understand is, like, you could clearly hear the footsteps upstairs. Why were the um, the maids saying that they couldn't hear it? Or whenever Angela Lansbury was like, no, like, the gas light, like, didn't dim when it clearly had. I thought, was Angela Lansbury, like, part of it? And she wasn't. So why were they, like, not agreeing with her when things were obviously happening? That was That was the only thing I was confused about.
1: Yeah, I think there's some unpacking of it like towards the end, but it's sort of like a puzzle movie where if you rewatch it you like pick up other things. Mm-hmm. I feel and yeah, there's a few dangling things like that, but also you can kind of tell that it all does like fit together, um even if I don't remember the specific <laughs> answers to those. Sure. Like it just it just feels like a pristine thing and I feel like a lot of it is bad luck. Like I feel like it's a mix of factors. Like some people misremember things, and some people just aren't sure what they heard. And the problem isn't that he seems suspicious; is that he always has like an excuse almost. And Charles Boyer is so good too. Like I, yes, you can't tell me like Bing Crosby in anything was a better actor than him and, and deserved to beat him at this Oscars because like right. Bing Crosby is not much of an actor, and Boyer is just to me him and Bergman are both creating essentially these iconic archetypes that I feel like so many movies are tied to about like Mm, male privilege and shittiness in so many ways. It's an early feminist film and even like feminist classic. And I almost get moved just thinking about the possibility that any woman at that time could have seen that and like started to question things her husband was telling her more. Like it's, it's a powerful movie. And I, I just, I, I love Gaslight, and I think you really can't say enough about Bergman in it, especially because it's a one-person show. I would say Barbara Stanwyck doesn't really go big in her performance. Mm-hmm. She She's like, Stanwyck, you can't read her. Like, that's, that's the whole game. But right. the other four, they go big in some moments, and I think Bergman's the only one who really has the best excuse to go enormous in the acting style because... She feels crazy. It's like the situation where you yell in real life. It's like, how is this happening to me? Right. And because it makes it more entertaining if they do make it a little more theatrical and kick it up a notch. So uh, to me, even those moments where she's over the top, especially because George Kukor is such a good director, like I felt like it was intentionally over the top. And I felt like I was glad that it was over the top. And I would have liked the movie less if she didn't get to like really go ham.
0: Yeah, that's actually a very uh very good point. And also I love that you said that these performances are literally archetypes. You're so that's so true. That's a very good way of of putting it. Um, and because of uh something like that, you know, it's like you have to make sure that you really deliver. And I think that she and Charles Boyer have truly delivered here. I love um because it's it's so Ugh, frustrating to watch him gaslight her and uh, as like, cause you're rooting for her and you're just getting so frustrated. But then at the end, whenever she gaslights him by being like a knife, what do you mean? And she's holding a knife in her hand and she's like, I don't have a knife. And then she kind of just starts to repeat back the rhetoric that he has been, you know, using towards her, you know, as an audience member, like that's very, very satisfying. It has a very satisfying ending. And, uh, but, also, just the cinematography and like the just the 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 fantasy, the setting, like I just was very aesthetically pleasing. Like the house in which it takes place, it it just fits so well for somebody going crazy during this time. Like I just um, uh, it, everything about this movie, I I very much enjoyed. Like I very much enjoyed Bergman's performance, obviously, but I also just enjoyed the film, and I think that this is the best. Film in the five um and I think that Ingrid Bergman in this uh movie, yeah is absolutely absolutely fantastic and uh, i can I can definitely see why she why she won
1: yeah i I think the way I think of the early Oscars is that like the best picture nominees and sometimes the the lead acting nominees it's not necessarily the good movies it's like whatever seems like a good movie so if it's about war it's like you're in there's a war happening now right and i think to me double indemnity and gaslight really stand out for like looking and sounding like real movies not just like an old movie that was about the right topic at the right time that no one really talks about anymore mm-hmm. these two are sort of like head to shoulders they are so gorgeous and they're well performed by everyone even if you compare like joseph cotton works really well in gaslight and he's kind of terrible and since he went away or at least unintentionally creepy. And <laughs> everything's just a little more calibrated in these these two that have, it just seems like the right two sort of became classics. And I am really fascinated by who it really was that made gaslighting a, a term because it's like, was it an older person who did this or a classic film fan? Like what's right. the story? What's the etym- oral history of uh, saying gaslighting?
0: totally yeah like who is the one that was like this like this is what we're calling it it now (laughs) it could only be a reference to
1: the movie because the
0: gaslight has not a
1: gaslight has nothing to do with like lying other than in this scenario
0: exactly yeah no that's very true i i always wonder that yeah that's very interesting um okay well do you have anything else that you would like to add to the performance before we select who we think that the oscar should have gone to
1: I think Bergman was great. It reminded me of uh, Hitchcock's movie Notorious, which I think is maybe her very best performance. Mm. And that's a movie where uh, her and Cary Grant are setting up an operation where she has to essentially seduce Claude Rains and spy on him. And it's very much a potboiler kind of movie like this, where you're like, when are they going to blow the lid off of this thing? When are they going to come to a head and have to like destroy each other basically, and someone emerges victorious? So. Hitchcock's Notorious uh, is part of my recommendation corner for this movie.
0: What year did that come out?
1: That's uh, 46. I think they might have all rudely not been nominated for it. Because Hitchcock, weirdly, outside of Rebecca, did not do that well with the Oscars.
0: Yes. Right. Okay. All right. Okay. I was wondering, because there was this quote that I read that... um she comforted Alfred Hitchcock before he died being like, well, we're all going to die. And he was like, Oh, I find this so comforting. And she found that weird that he found that comforting. <laughs> <laughs> I'm only, I'm only saying that cause you brought up Hitchcock and I was just like, Oh, I read something about that, but okay. Well, um, Josh, uh, you are my guest of honor. So please reveal who you think that the Oscar should have gone to.
1: Sure. thing. I think the Oscar should have gone to I'm going to say Barbara Stanwyck in uh, Double Indemnity. Yeah. Um,
0: Interesting. Why? Real tough
1: call with her and Bergman. I just think it is to me as a noir fan, it is the defining noir performance and it's the defining subtle performance. Uh, wow. I can grant that it's a little borderline in terms of lead and supporting, but it's really between her and Bergman for me. They're both timeless, iconic ones. And Bergman, she has three Oscars. It's not the one I would take away. It's probably her best uh, of the wins. Uh, she's certainly better than her supporting role in Murder on the Ex- Orient Express that she ran for. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, but Stanwick, it's just, she is on many dates, either her or Julianne Moore is probably my favorite actress and Stanwick, it's her defining role and it's sort of the defining noir role to me and to me it's just such a lower register such a lower key thing of just mumbling pretending to have very little expression as you deliver things but revealing something behind the eyes flirting constantly without really saying anything incriminating mm-hmm. and that like live wire act I guess she just kept me guessing a little more than Bergman just because of the nature of the movie and to me that's thrilling how you don't really know in double indemnity who to trust out of any of the leads. And she just, yeah, I do wish the wigs were a little better, but <laughs> the sunglasses and the store and some of the, some of these moments uh, just it, it's because it's the one I've seen three times. Probably they just, they just live in my head, but I cannot really fault the Bergman win because it's, it's so great too. And even I feel like if Claude Colbert didn't have an Oscar, she might've gained some steam for this one if she didn't already have a win. So like, it's a strong field. But yeah, it- uh, Stanwick is my heart. My heart's choice. <laughs> I'm actually now curious if I would vote for Bergman any of the times she was nominated, but I-, I hope so. I'm very glad she won Oscars and I'm glad she got three of them. She is one of the best to ever do it. But uh, Stanwick is just a passion pick for me.
0: Interesting. No, I understand that and I'm not really surprised that you had picked um Stanwick it's interesting though because during this time in history whenever you would get an Oscar it would not necessarily be for like the film that like you should have won for so for example Betty Davis has two Oscars for two movies that I'm sure many people have never even heard of uh dangerous and Jezebel but her best films that everybody would be familiar with are whatever happened to baby Jane and all about Eve right or even the letter like like, but yeah. you know um like you're saying Casablanca it's like Ingrid Bergman won for gaslight um th- there's a lot of that during this time it's kind, in-
1: of, it's kind of still a thing too
0: oh totally i mean even it's like Claudette. Still Alice. oh absolutely. well st- well uh, as well i i think she should have won that oscar we actually did that episode i do
1: love that movie uh i just don't think it's quite her best performance but that's just because i think she's the best to ever do it
0: well i mean the the thing about Uh, Julianne Moore winning for uh, Still Alice is that for me that was a haunting performance, and I think that's why she won. Um, Was the right genre? Yes, um, but okay. So, all right, I I I think that the Oscars should have gone to Ingrid Bergman for Gaslight. I um. Yeah, I, it's it's not really much of a competition for me here. I did enjoy Barbara Stanwyck, and I I understand the points that you were making, but I I feel like my second runner up here would have been Claudette Colbert. I just wish that there was more of her in that film. Um, but yeah. I felt that Ingrid Bergman. When when you said that they are playing archetypes, I thought, oh, geez, like that is such a good way of putting it because it's so effective and that's so true and like literally the term is named after this movie so clearly she did something extremely iconic and historically relevant so i think that that goes beyond an oscar in terms of a performance you know what i mean um and I think that uh, her character's pacing is is very wonderful. Her her slow descent into madness is very interesting. I mean, there were some times where she looked like she was more tired than she was crazy, but apparently she was, you know, imitating somebody from an actual mental health hospital. So, um, you know, that maybe that was just a ch- like a character choice. But overall, um, and also like what you said, where it's like she got to really go big here because that's what called for it. She did it, but she didn't do it in like a caricature way where I felt like Betty Davis in um, Mr. Skeffington um, had uh, had a lot of uh, caricature moments that were a little over the top that didn't work where in this case I thought that they were really effective um, I just thought that as a film it was my favorite of the group I love the cinematography I love all the costumes I love like all the just everything. Um, and uh, I also thought that Charles Boyer was like wonderful as a leading man, evil husband. And uh, this film for me, I very much recommend to anybody listening. And I totally understand why she won this Oscar. And for me, my win is Ingrid Bergman. Okay, Josh, that concludes another episode of best actress. Where can people find you on social media?
1: I am mosh jury on everything. Just uh Josh Murray with the first letter switched.
0: There we go. Okay, well, thank you for being a guest, Josh. We really appreciate it. And we'll have to have you back again. Bye. Did you enjoy the show? Want to hear more episodes? Visit patreon.com best bestactress to access our entire catalog of episodes ad-free with your subscription. Subscribers also get access to new episodes one day earlier than everyone else. Oh my God. Go to patreon.com best actress to subscribe and I will see you all at Howard's Inn.